you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today my own writing, as we get into more Nero by Patrick Attaway. And I don't have a whole lot to say before we start reading today, but my wife and I were talking about her possibly possibly being on an episode and she even had some talking points. We're not going to be talking about writing by any means, but the ideas that she had really excited me. We had some experiences recently that brought these things up. So we may do that next week. I don't know. I can't promise anything. I've been trying to get her on for a long time and people have asked for her because they like our our conversations that I tweet about. So she may be on here soon. That will make my second guest. I would have really liked her to have been my first guest. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, you're missing out because that is the first short story in the series on Nero, Avenging New America, which you can find on Amazon, Kindle, Vela, so you can read it on your desktop. I imagine you can read it on your phone, your iPad, whatever whatever you have that you want to read it on, except for a Kindle Paperwhite, as I addressed in the previous episode. I had to download my own copies of these and put them into a Word document and upload it to my Kindle through Calibre. My wife and I just finished watching Joker, and that was my third time watching it. I, we saw it in the movie theater on October 3rd, the evening before my 28th birthday. I wasn't sure I was going to survive age 27, but... Uh, that was a great birthday gift. I love that movie. And as I watched it again, it really made me want to write more in this little universe that I've created, but I've been focused on writing more literary fiction lately, especially since I might be working on my master's thesis pretty soon. And I'm not sure what I'm going to write about then, but it sure as hell isn't going to be Nero. The second story delves into Nero in his second year as a vigilante in Atlanta. So let's get into it. This is 2131. Detective Easton walks me through the rows of desks with the refurbished typewriters and dented metal frames toward his office. There's a rotting smell, though I can't trace the source. He lights an apple pie-scented candle while apologizing. Apparently that smell is why I'm here. Normally, Easton says, the government protocol for murder investigations is seven days before we have to close the cases unsolved. How many get solved before the seven days, I ask? Maybe half, Easton says. We don't have the manpower or budget to go beyond the seventh day. New American people tend to prefer finding justice their own way. I suppose that's why you exist, huh? Most people ain't like me, I say. I have old books that survived the dark period, he says, written by a psychologist and FBI about why people kill. The serial killer was rare then, but now... This is my first. Easton opens a binder and shows me instant photographs of various limbs and boxes. They aren't bloody and decayed. 
There's a plastic appearance, and as they look shiny and free of any blood, Atlanta either has a vampire cult, Easton says, or a cannibal who likes to vacuum seal his prey. We get a new box addressed to me every day with a body part. Someone is mailing you their victims, I ask. No heads or torsos, he says. No hearts or other organs, just the arms and legs one by one. Whoever they are is taunting us. I'm guessing you already checked with the post office. They're using an old video cassette surveillance system and nobody has seen who is dropping off the boxes. I'm going to cut in here as the author. This vacuum-sealed, blood-sucking, mailing body parts to the police, this is an idea that originated with Harley Freudland in Demise of the Trinity. And of course, it's not in later drafts or in the final draft, but when I originally wrote Harley, I imagined him being sort of like a murdering version of the Riddler, which is apparently what is exactly what they're doing with the Riddler in the new Robert Pattinson Batman. But I revived that idea because... There's a really good sense of mystery with it, but also it does have that gritty late 80s, 90s Batman feel to it where he's investigating murderers and stuff. It's too easy to commit a crime now. While we're not a rich country full of millionaires, New America doesn't let people starve or sleep in the cold. People don't steal too often because they're going to bed with full bellies. Once they buy a haptic mask, they can go anywhere in their heads without needing a mansion. Someone would have to be pretty bored to go around killing people and go to the trouble to mail the evidence. Have you staked out the post office, I ask? We have an officer posted, Easton says, but he hasn't even seen someone bring in a box that big. Then who's to say it isn't someone working at the post office? Maybe the postman himself delivers his victim's limbs. Hell, it could be someone in the mailroom at the Atlanta Police Department. Easton is a professional and should have already followed these trails. We identified the last set of prints on a hand, Easton says. One of our own. They're not only a vampire, they're a cop killer. I don't want to force... I don't want my force afraid to do their job, so that's why I called. Per the law, I have to ignore the dead people being put on my desk now. There's an evidence room full of these packages. Smells like someone tried to cook a baby in a hot car. None of these boxes have return addresses. Each has a postmark signifying it was handled in the post office, and cut-up newspaper provides a decorative cushion for the deceased memorabilia. Detective Easton doesn't cover his nose or indicate the aroma bothers him, but he's pale like an anemic child with a clean-shaven face and dull brown eyes. Doesn't look like he even served in the military per government regulation, but I see his dog tag ID tattooed on his left wrist. Where haven't you looked, I asked. I personally went through the post office and interviewed everyone. We kept the delivery woman in an interrogation room for eight hours. 
I watch their VHS footage. The box appears, they get processed like regular mail, and they show up here. Per the law, they have to deliver it, I say. Right. As I'm trying to imagine how a person sneaks a box this big into the post office every week without anyone noticing, Easton nudges me to leave the room with him. I suppose there are multiple angles. Figuring out how this person vacuums out the blood and disposes of it might be a start, but the answer seems to be obvious to obviously be the post office. That could be a purposeful misdirect, though. Everything I've told you is all I know, Easton says. If you find them, at least we tried. I'm not a witty investigator, I say. People might even say I'm dumb. A dumbass wouldn't admit to being dumb. Few people own vacuums of any sort because most apartments and homes have either concrete or wood flooring. Those who can afford antique rugs usually hang them outside and hit them with a broom. Besides, a vacuum cleaner you'd buy in a store wouldn't be able to soak up any blood without the engine burning up. Of course, people go missing. With teleportation, you can go anywhere and start over. Change your name and be a new person. The population isn't so dense that no one wouldn't notice their boyfriend, bad girl, beer distiller, or convenience store clerk went missing. Even poor houses keep tabs on everyone who sleeps there. The scenario seems improbable. Then I stop in front of the post office and realize that without the heads, organs, or torsos, we don't know if these people are dead. Anyone can survive without their arms and legs. Thus, I can't confirm this is a serial killer. How would someone be able to house a bunch of limbless people, though? Again, I come back to the vacuum. They either have money or resources. They definitely have space. Until I can figure that out, I have to stop the mail. A small bomb in the lobby would necessitate a closure without harming anyone if I do it at night. Maybe a bomb threat. An officer stationed at the post office isn't going to deter anyone, and there's a possibility the culprit sneaks inside another way. Hell, they could be bringing in the body parts in another container and building a cardboard shippable box inside. Okay, so this idea about him bringing in a bomb, this was actually an idea that I had for the story, that he would come in, drop a bomb, it would go off, and they would have to close the post office. So sometimes the ideas that I get for characters and their motivations and actions that they do, I don't use them, but I use that thought process as their thought process, as you can see here. The Atlanta post office is right by what used to be Spaghetti Junction and a courthouse. Now there are abandoned buildings and incomplete bridges from old America. I'm able to get to the courthouse roof with a digital camera I bought off an antiques dealer that's supposed to hold enough memory for 10 hours of footage. Like Easton said, there's a cop stationed near the entrance. He could see me if he only looked up far enough. If this were 2095... I could slash all the mail truck tires, but all the mail carriers work on foot. Bigger packages like dismembered body parts are delivered later in the day one by one. 
since there's a teleportation terminal in the post office, they don't have to travel far. This camera and the cop are useless if someone figured out how to teleport into the post office, though. Mail carriers have badges they scan to enter the coordinates. Now, getting a mail carrier's ID badge wouldn't be an issue, and now I'm realizing that I could stop this for a while if I disabled Atlanta's teleportation terminals. Yes, I went through this thought process of wondering how else I could stop this and also create more interesting scenes, a build-up. You can't just get to point A to point B where he solves a murder. It can't be that simple. As writers, we need to come up with different scenarios and issues for our characters. You know, the whole point of the Trinity is that they can't die, so I have to come up with various scenarios that would impede their progress, that would be a little bit more unique to them versus someone who could actually get shot or stabbed and die. And what's funny is when I came up with the idea for the Trinity, I didn't realize that I could have just had characters that I just didn't kill, you know. But the idea that they're invincible is cooler, isn't it? Because you ever watch John Wick? I mean, there are three movies of that guy getting shot at, stabbed, and he gets the shit beat out of him, and yet he's still alive. He falls from a building in the third one, and he still dies. I mean, he still lives, rather. I could have just done that. <laughs> I leave the camera and climb down to my GM Sarmenti. Unlike most Americans, I can afford a car and even painted mine matte black. Disabling the teleportation terminals won't keep people from walking, but we don't have any other public transportation. If the limbless bandit has the money to possibly house a bunch of living torsos, then they probably have a car too. Mansur Sean designed the teleportation system as a network, but each town has servers with private security guards. Now, I can pull up my unique black car and politely ask them to let me in so I can temporarily cause panic in the city, but they're not likely to forget me. I don't want to hurt them, and I'm definitely not going to kill them, though I need them out of the way. The bomb wasn't a bad idea. I can duct tape a couple of flashbangs together and cause a distraction. The Sean server room resides in an outlet mall, not strictly kept, now strictly kept as a public transportation hub not far from Jefferson Tate. Unlike the post office cop, there's an armored truck, several guys with bulletproof vests, and a lot of refurbished AR-15s. That's a lot of information in that, so I just want to break this down a little bit. Mansur Sean is in Surviving New America. He's in book one and he designs the teleportation system that is aforementioned. And then there's the mention of Jefferson Tate, that is the school that Ken Price goes to in Price of the Trinity that is based on Morehouse College, and of course the mention of refurbished AR-15s because, as is established in Surviving New America, there are not that many people making new guns. There are definitely no companies mass, mass manufacturing firearms, so that's why they're refurbished.
none of them can shoot me, but they might accidentally shoot one another. I also don't want to risk actual damage to the servers. Coming at night won't do any good because the guards work in shifts. My bomb idea will only make them trigger happy. May I ask your business here, sir? The guard asked at the gate. I'm here for monthly server maintenance, I say. The servers are maintained remotely, he says. He holds up his rifle when I open my car door. So I pull the barrel to my right shoulder and force the butt into his chest. After he hits the ground, I toss the gun into my open car window and pull him up like a sack of potatoes and haul him past the gate where his colleagues take notice with their identical rifles. Oh, hello, I say. Could you clear a path for me? Put Grizzard down or we fire, one says. Is that actually your name? I ask the guard hanging over my shoulder. One of them fires a warning shot as if we weren't trained to maintain to remain calm during gunfire in the new American army. I'm clearly an able-bodied man who served. The educational system isn't tremendous, but I thought I lacked common sense. Obviously, if one of you shoots at me, you might hit Grizzard. As I walk closer, some of them back away and the stubborn ones are close enough for me to toss Grizzard at them like a log. Thankfully, no one decides to shoot at me, so I turn around to get back into my car. Where is this fuck going, one of them asks. The sound of the guards and Grizzard wrestling around makes me laugh, though I doubt they see the humor in throwing a grown man into human bowling pins. They're running after me by the time I reach my car, so I grab the rifle I stole from Grizzard and aim straight up. Ironically, they cower and try to find cover. I'm not certain why my investigation of a potential murderer turned into a comedy sketch. They all move out of the way when I hit my accelerator and head for the steel doors that protect the Sean servers from idiots like me. Sure, my car takes damage and I bounce into the steering wheel, but I manage to nudge the doors off their hinges. My best buddies run for me with their guns drawn, though they shouldn't fire anywhere near the servers. Can you guys keep an eye out for me? I ask as I climb out of the car. Headshot, you dumb fucks, Grizzard shouts. Grizzard is clearly the football player who said bad game whenever players slapped each other's hands after a loss. Apparently, my demonstration wasn't enough to tell them why they shouldn't fuck with me. Rather than display decorum, the six men who still retain their guns start unloading their clips at me. Of course, there's no way some bullets don't go through the doorway and cause server damage. None of them bother reloading while I'm still standing. Now, I'd like to keep this peaceful and avoid con conflict, but I grab Grizzard by the face and slam him to the asphalt. One of the guards tries prying me off him, which turns out to be a mistake because he joins Grizzard on the ground. I don't know if you figured it out yet, I say, but I could easily kill all seven of you. Leave me alone. Why are you even here, one asks. I was bored, I guess. The servers are still bleeping and blooping with their blinking lights, so I look around for the emergency cutoff switch. In the event servers overheat when the AC malfunctions or whatever, the switch prevents the motherboards from melting. Pulling the glass cover from the key stuck into the wall, 
I turn the lock and the room goes quiet. I realize someone can come back in here and turn the switch back on, so I pocket the key and walk around to find the power switcher for the building. I'm not sure how much time this will buy me or stop the post office from delivering mail, but I'd rather not play dominoes with the servers and permanently damage Atlanta's public transportation infrastructure. Pulling out my wallet as I return to the guards, who clearly never had their asses kicked while holding automatic rifles, I offer Grizzard a $100 gold credit. He snatches the money from my hand before giving me the confused response typical of someone being bribed. Each of them accepts their bribes and I have their attention without the gunplay. I might have led with the money instead of fighting them. Now I feel bad for Grizzard. Yeah, Nero isn't smart and I tried to walk the thin line between him being logical and being a dumbass. And he does grow... As this series continues, just as he grows in Surviving New America, but the whole point of his character is just like Ken and Birch and Arthur, I want to show the different scenarios that can come from being invincible and having that much power and how some men choose to abuse it and others don't, or they just abuse it in other ways. And Nero is definitely taking advantage of his power, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But he's also an anti-hero, even though he's trying to do good. He's not doing good by the system. Gentlemen, I say, I'm asking something big. No one should turn those servers back on for 48 hours. In two days from today, I will return to turn them back on. If anyone asks, there's a glitch. You guys know what a glitch means. We got it, Grizzard says. Well, it was a pleasure whipping your asses. The Atlanta News on Channel 2 doesn't cover the weather, local schools doing fundraisers, someone turning 70, or a new bakery opening up in downtown. Nobody can teleport into Atlanta, so businesses and travelers are pissy. In a city where few people own cars, no one is excited about having to walk far. As the words coming out of the TV turn to background noise, I stretch my legs and close my eyes. Sometimes I can actually make it to my bed before falling asleep. The only thing on TV that isn't the boring news hour is old shows from before 2033. It's been 46 years since New America took form and the electricity came back. No one values the television anymore. The phone in my kitchen rings. I pick up the receiver on my right and involuntarily groan as I crawl out of the twilight. Detective Easton's voice sounds like it's coming from a long tunnel until my brain catches up with my ears. The police who responded to the report of gunfire, Easton says, told the chief that none of Sean's private armsmen would say what happened. They were already fixing the doors you broke off the hinges when the cops showed up. Sorry, I say. Uh, what? Why did you think it was a good idea to disable the tele- teleport terminals in Atlanta, Nero? I'm not saying I did, but the other ideas I had weren't as good. Essentially, we need to disrupt the postal service for the next two days. Shit, I just remembered. I need to go change the memory card in my camera. Driving anywhere in a dinged-up car is asking for police to pull me over. Thankfully, 
I have more than one car, such as the luxury of dealing in real estate years ago. Tell your posted man to go home, I say. We have to keep the area around the post office clear. What are you thinking, Easton asks. Nero, I've been skeptical about you for a while now. The APD doesn't like outsiders messing around with our cases. The only reason I contacted you was to fix what we can't with government restrictions. People are getting chopped into pieces. I'm not much of a thinker. Despite not having internet access in New America, computers aren't obsolete. I built my own, though microchips produced by genetic motors cost more than 20 haptic masks. The footage on the SD card climaxes when I manage to disable the teleportation servers. A few postal workers walk outside and look around as if trying to ascertain if there's a blackout or lightning bolts from heaven. Thirty minutes later, a man in a suit whose features appear blurry in the image opens the door for everyone in the building to file out before he locks the door. Surely whoever that man is knows about the mailed arms and legs. People aren't entirely stupid. When potential murderers lurk around, this sort of event informs them that someone is either inhibiting their perpetrator or terrorizing in Atlanta. Either way, the best way to avoid harm is to close the post office until the teleportation terminals function again. Plus, a lot of those people have long walks home. I only have an hour left to swap the SD card and the camera again this morning. Should I make my scrambled eggs or climb out on the courthouse roof on an empty stomach. It's not like if I fall I'll break my skull open. Unlike my matte black GM, the red 2006 Ford Mustang I restored in Portland possesses a lot less stealth. Even without gasoline, the engine rattles every man's testicles in a mile radius. No man or woman lurks around the post office, which makes the fog and overcast sky that much more poignant. The battery on the camera is almost out. Further proof that I'm a dumbass is that I didn't bring a backup. As I'm knelt over, a shrill tone from below makes me look up. There's a black Cadillac Escalade coming down the road. I saw one in Austin, but it wasn't running. It didn't even have tires. Stopping in front of the post office, a woman with gray hair and loud black boots crosses over to the entrance and looks inside. This might be my new friend. Should I call her the Lopper? Barbie doll killer? She doesn't spook when I land on my feet from a three-story fall. If she's armed, then she already knows it won't do any good. I'm not a fan of mace or stun guns, though. I peek in the tinted rear window to see a shipping box. Perhaps the best camouflage is gender? People suspect men of evil deeds, but rarely do they even notice a woman driving a restored Cadillac. License plate number RT674QP, I say. Pretty random for a county with less than 200 privately owned vehicles. I wondered when I'd get to meet you, Nero, she says. The dramatic music intensifies. The camera zooms into my shocked face. She thinks saying my name drops a bomb. Although her knowing who I am doesn't bode well for my eyes if she has pepper spray. People in my circles are saying your name a lot, she approaches me. Says a lot about your circles, I say. My dad always said you are who you hang with. Are you intending to see me hang?
I would hold you here and call the police, I say. But for some reason, I think there's more than one person sawing off people's limbs now. Because I'm a woman, she asked. I must be part of a cannibalistic cult who are eating people and discarding them to taunt the police. Just because you joke about it doesn't make it untrue, I say. Up close, she's not purposely dying her hair gray as a fashion statement. The leather skirt, black cashmere sweater, and oversized sunglasses portray her as wealthy, but also terribly behind the times. You're too curious to turn me in, she says. You want to see where I do it. All right, then, I knock on her car. Drive me. Something about my plan worked out too well. If I weren't in the Trinity, getting in a car with a murderer wouldn't be smart. But I'm aware of my limitations. Despite the possible ramifications, I'm resigned to seeing this through. Okay, as I said earlier, Nero really ain't that bright. So, yeah. Why is he getting in the car with a murderer? Despite the fact that he is invincible... How does she really know that? Even though he just jumped off a roof on landing on his feet, whatever. But she knows him by name. And he doesn't really question that too long. And then she's just prepared to show him where she's committing these crimes. As the audience, I hope that you're questioning all of this. Because it's relevant again later on. Pulling out the wallet in her purse, I look for an ID. Next to a photo of her with darker hair is the name McCord, Lily. Born 41 years ago in 2090. I've heard the name McCord before, but where? The former CEO of Genetic Motors was just Gentry McCord, but he passed away in 2128. All the Atlanta motor vehicle production ceased around 2096 and they solely manufactured haptic masks. In relation to Gentry McCord, I hold up the ID. You mean my father? Lily asks. Wow, I say. I guess you got bored with all your money. Pretty soon, everyone is going to be bored, Nero. The haptic mask can only hold out interest for a short while. Everyone is going to take it off one day and thirst for something more. Are you blaming oversaturation for murder, I ask? Not just murder. People will steal for the thrill. Jump off bridges to feel something real. Good thing I'm here, I say. The Trinity is outdated, Nero. New America has outgrown you. With that logic, so did old America. 2033 was the one time the Trinity came together to protect Earth from evil. If not for Murray Groan reviving the Trinity, I wouldn't be in this car now. What use am I to New America if not to protect them from the people stealing their limbs? The evil ones need to know someone can stop them. The good ones should know the due process. Our justice system might need more than a few days to solve their crimes. You're right, I say. That's why I'm not the one who's going to punish you. Before I interviewed W.B. Welch, we had a conversation that I edited out in the beginning where she mentioned that 
she'd listened to past episodes and I'd put something in my mouth. She couldn't remember what I put in a fisherman's friend because despite the fact that I have a glass of water, all this talking dries up my throat. So here we go. If you hear anything swashing around in my mouth, it's a fisherman's friend. Lily parks on the street outside a concrete building with kudzu and weeds providing the force field from suspicion. We approach the building, but I stay a few paces behind her with my ears open for anyone else who might try to sneak around me. After unlocking a deadbolt and padlock, Lily creaks the door open to reveal what used to be a slaughterhouse. Rather than lots of pig carcasses floating around on hooks, there's a long metal table with a meat grinder and hose leading to an industrial-sized vacuum. Red and, bl- red and brown stains encircle a drain where I presume she removes the appendages. Tied with rusted barbed wire to a metal chair is a broad-chested man whose only remaining limb is his left arm. He croaks something. Lily walks over to a cabinet and returns with a water bottle she squeezes into her prey's mouth. She rubs through his salt and pepper hair and straightens his mustache like a wife to her husband before he leaves for work. As you see, Nero, Lily says, Bonassa's here won't have a quality of life worth a damn after what I've done. After what you've done, I say. You're asking me to let you kill him. I can't let another life go because you deemed someone unworthy of life. In this water, she says, is a sedative. I put them all out before surgery. She's drugging Bonassas now, but I won't stop her. Instead, I study the meat grinder and discover that she's definitely killing her victims. She made the cannibalistic crack, but the best way to get rid of meat is for, for someone to eat it. If you're not eating them, I ask, who is? I have two Dobermans, Lily says. Dog food is so expensive, you know. Why? Bonassus nods off. With a wink and smile, Lily turns the water, water bottle up as she chugs the remnants. She tosses the empty canister to the floor before I can stop her. Holding her jaw, I try to force my fingers down her throat, but she bites down. While I'm not into hitting women, I'd say anyone should be able to hit someone in the face if they've murdered multiple people. She purges with a wet cough onto the concrete floor. I reached over to feel Bonassus' pulse, and he's already gone. Why did I believe her about the sedative? I should have saved him first. Not that I'm guilt-ridden about not forcing a nearly dead man to throw up. To think I was going to visit you in prison, I say. Despite that I get to watch Detective Easton put the handcuffs on her and reach the same conclusions about Lily's victims, I lean against the Escalade and look up at the white sky. The police never considered handling this case as I did. Nobody suggested shutting down the postal service for a couple of days. Easton stationed a man there, but that amounted to more men dying. Once Lily departs in her new black and white carriage with Atlanta's finest, Easton looks at me from his car and back at the slaughterhouse before waving me over. Somehow his skin looks gray in the dimming light. She said Bonassus was already gone before you showed up, Easton says. I'll vouch for that, I say. 
I guess the next time Atlanta has a serial killer, I'll call you before the seven days are over. You know, I wasn't sure, but you're a good guy, Nero. You may question why Nero played along with the lie that Benassas was already dead when they showed up at the slaughterhouse. And from my perspective... It wouldn't be a good look for Nero to admit to watching her kill someone without stopping her. But, you know, I like the idea that the audience comes up with their own conclusions. I nod and step back so Easton can pull out. As soon as I get into the Escalade, I'm headed to the Sean server room. Next time Atlanta has a serial killer, I hope I'm dead. In reality, I know that once the news picks up, On me helping APD, I'm bringing more legitimacy to the Trinity. People will recognize me. Some might decide to run. Others will want to test me. Birch made references to superheroes. One night, I caught a Batman movie on TV. Whoever the guy with the green hair is, I think they call him the Joker, exists because of Batman. Without Batman fighting the mob and bank robbers, the city only has the police to deal with criminals. The Joker is a response to Batman, and he's only the start. With all the power Birch has, I didn't know why he preferred seclusion until now. When Easton said there will be another serial killer, there was a tinge in his tone that suggested it'll be worse. Had I stayed in Portland or moved to Austin with my head down, maybe Lily wouldn't be in that police car. Because Batman created the Joker, all of the Joker's actions reflect Batman. Of course, the Joker keeps getting out of the insane asylum and Batman chases him back down. More eyes on me means more people acknowledging the Trinity, which leads directly to Birch. At some point, he has to end my life. Nothing pisses him off like an invasion of privacy. I am not going to read more. But I hope that you get the gist of this and you enjoyed it enough to go read it yourself. And it's free on Amazon, although to to read past the third episode, as they call it, you have to pay in tokens and you get 2,000 free tokens when you sign up for... Vela or whatever the fuck. So, yeah, if you want to read it, the whole thing is free on Amazon. It won't cost you more than the 2,000 tokens that you get for free. Maybe you've already used those tokens. I'm sorry if that's the case. There are a lot of, I won't say big, well-known authors, but there are authors with a following that are essentially just publishing full-ass novels on Vela, which isn't really the point of it. The point of Vela was for authors to use it for short stories and episodic work. So that's what I used it for. I'm not noticing much traction from it, so that's fantastic. That's just tremendous. Wow. I'm so overwhelmed by everyone not reading the shit I put out there. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting because I have a following... There are people who listen to the podcast, and yet uh, very few people have actually tried reading this. 
And maybe they have read it, they didn't like it, then they moved on. That's always a possibility. Maybe I am a terrible writer. Even though I think what I write is good, I think I put out quality work, there's a possibility that no one else in the world thinks that. And that's fine with me, whatever. But I did get, you know, really good reviews for Demise of the Trinity. And I've not really gotten many reviews. I've gotten good ratings for those other books that I've written. But I don't know what anyone really thinks about them. So there's that. At least I can rely on my mother for that. My wife doesn't read my stuff, but my mother will, will read anything I write. I am not working on a novel. As I said, I'm working on short stories. So it's not like you're going to fall behind if you decide to read my work. You can find all of it on Amazon. It's all cheap. My paperbacks are all under 10 bucks. I think my most of my Kindle books are 99 cents. My novels and my fiction are a little bit more than that. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed listening to this and I hope that you take the time to support me and the podcast by go by getting on Amazon and reading the work, giving it reviews. I hope that you enjoy it all. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can find me on on Twitter, rather, at Patrick Attaway with an extra little Y at the end. I adore all of you who are listening. I thank you for listening. I hope you have a great weekend and happy reading.